What then? Are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Good evening, everybody. My name is James, part of the team here. Uh, Welcome to anyone that might be new or visiting. Um, We're coming to a really important part of the book of Romans tonight, so why don't I pray for God's help for all of us. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for uh, our learning through the book of Romans. Thank you for speaking to us, making yourself known and making the way of salvation known to us. Please help us as we wrestle with this part of your word tonight that um, we would come to understand it and by your Holy Spirit our hearts would be changed, uh, leading to uh, trust in your word 
uh, and love for your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, there's a book uh, you might have heard of called Forgiving Hitler. Um, it's actually a story of an Australian woman uh, who obviously uh, grew up in uh, Europe uh, and had a Jewish background and suffered un- under the Nazi regime uh, and uh, emigrated to Australia later in life. Actually, a woman from the Sutherland Shire, her granddaughter comes to our evening service. And in, I'm not sure if anyone here knows Julian the vet in, um, in Janali. This is Julian's mother-in-law. Um, it's a story of this woman becoming a Christian, turning to faith in Jesus, and incredibly uh, forgiving Hitler. I want you to imagine uh, for a moment that uh, in his bunker uh, in Berlin at the end of the Second World War, Hitler uh, acknowledged all that he'd done, all the evil that he'd perpetrated, the, the suffering and death which he had sponsored, um, and, and acknowledged all that with remorse and begged God for mercy, for salvation on the basis of the, the Christian offer in the gospel. Um, what should God do about that? Uh, should God forgive him? Um, thinking of all that Hitler has done, um, the importance of God uh, upholding justice, things being fair, evil, immense evil being held, held to account. Um, imagine a world in which uh, God's justice was swept aside and someone like that uh, was uh, let into heaven uh, along with, with others who have turned to Jesus. Um, it raises a question. I mean, this Hitler, is, you know, it's a classic example of someone um, who's done, done wrong and it's something we all agree on. Um, but it does raise a question about God, the type of God that we would like. Would you rather a God of mercy or a God of justice? Would you rather a God of mercy or a God of justice? Um, we certainly value justice, just that example I've just used. Uh, we, we long for wrongdoers to be punished. And all of us in our daily life are frustrated and upset when we experience injustice um, in big things and small things. I can think of decisions that have gone against the Sydney Swans AFL team that have infuriated me uh, because they're clearly wrong and it's led to the other team winning the match and um, maybe you can think of the same for your sports team or in the workplace. Maybe you've seen um, you or one of your colleagues is the, the diligent, quiet achiever and uh, no one really notices you but then the, the clown who doesn't really work hard gets promoted and they're now uh, exercising... Uh, authority over you because the superiors have considered them, um, you know, a more valuable employee. Uh, we, not to mention r- wrongdoers, uh, evil people, um, uh, getting off, you know, without punishment, the Hitlers and the so forth. We, we love justice, rightly. Um, we want God to uphold fairness and justice. If that didn't happen, if God wasn't like that uh, it'd be awful but on the other hand we need mercy don't we that's been the point of the last few weeks Uh, maybe you wouldn't put yourself in the same 
category is Hitler, but it's been really clear the last few weeks as we've looked at Romans that we are all guilty in God's sight. Uh, guilty of uh, turning from him, uh, ignoring him, making gods for our, other gods for ourselves. Um, the, the verses 9 to 20 in the chapter that was read for us so well by Belinda, we're not going to spend long on um, this evening. They're there by way of summary reminding us and bringing to a conclusion the argument of the last two weeks. Verse 9, are we better off? Not at all. Uh, For we have already charged uh, that both Jews and Greeks, so Jews and non-Jews, are all under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 20, no one will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, by the works of the law, whether that's the Jewish law or the general moral law. No one will be justified in God's sight uh, because knowledge of sin comes through the law. We desperately need mercy. I wonder if the last few weeks you've come to yearn for and crave a solution to the predicament that we find ourselves in. Um, To be an enemy of the Creator and under His wrath. Do you long for a solution? I wonder if you see the dilemma here. For one person to exercise mercy and judgment at the same time is uh, logically uh, impossible. The two values uh, are almost mutually exclusive. Um, And how can God, if he is to be righteous and good and a God that upholds justice, how can he possibly uh, forgive sin? That's the question which this passage addresses. My suspicion is that we don't feel the weight of this question because we've become very used to what the Bible teaches about God's grace in Jesus. We're going to come to that. That's what this passage is about. Many of you have heard it before, of course. Um, But for someone that's suffered intolerable uh, oppression uh, at the hands of an evildoer... um, The notion of them being let off uh, is just uh, abominable. In fact, earlier in the Bible, we read things like this. uh, In Proverbs 17, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Exodus 23, um, God's words himself uh, to Moses. I will not justify the guilty Um, there is a serious dilemma in the gospel that needs to be addressed Uh, and Paul does it in this section of his letter now the paragraph we'll focus on is verses 21 to 26 Um, and as you've read it I wonder if you've noticed the the key theme which this paragraph addresses so four times the word righteousness comes up Uh, and three times the word justified or just or something like that. In the original language, uh, they come from the same family of words. Um, So to be justified, you could, you know, if someone was being silly with their translation, they could say righteousified, or um, verse 26, that God would be just, righteous, and righteousify the one who has faith in Jesus. This, This paragraph is all about the righteousness of God. And so I want to proceed with um, three headings. Uh, 
Firstly, we'll read about the righteousness that God gives. And second, the righteousness that God demonstrates. If you're a note taker, if you want to break up the passage, that's a helpful way to do it. And then at the end, just offer three reflections on what we've learnt. So, the righteousness that God gives. What is this righteousness of God that we read about there uh, in this paragraph? Well, the crucial word to get our head around is the word justification, justified. It's there in verse 24. It says, they are justified freely by his grace. Let let me just read the section, in fact. Um, If you have a Bible open, it'd be good to read along with me. Uh, But now, they're the best two words in the Bible. Uh, We've read about our guilt, a stunning intervention though here. But now. Uh, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace. When we talk about God uh, giving his righteousness, um, he's... He's engaging in the process of justifying someone. This is a term from the legal world, from the law court, and it means to be declared righteous. So imagine a judge in in a dispute when all the evidence has been heard and they make their decision and they pronounce either the, the accused as being innocent, they are justifying them, declared righteous. In a in a civil dispute where there's two parties, not so much a criminal thing. When the judge says to one party, you are right, you have done the right thing, the other person, they are wrong. When when a judge declares someone to be in the right, uh, they are justifying them. And what what this passage says is that God uh, has brought his final judgment, his end day evaluation and verdict uh, that he will issue based on... um, you know, his standards. He's brought that from the end time to the present and says to people, you are righteous. You are justified. Um, To be justified in God's sight um, is to be perfectly righteous in his eyes and acceptable to him. It's more than, this is is a wonderful truth, It's, it's something more than mere pardon or forgiveness. So to be forgiven, forgiveness says uh, you're off the hook. You may go. You've been let off of the penalty that your sin deserves. You're forgiven. Justification, uh, whilst of course includes forgiveness, justification goes further than that and says not you may go, but you may come. Uh, Welcome to my presence. my love is accessible to you. Join my family. Uh, have my eternal blessing. You are righteous in my sight. It's a wonderful thing to be justified by God. This is, we need God's righteousness because we're unrighteous and God justifies. Now, who is it for? Um, this isn't just an abstract concept. It's for everyone. Uh, verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, um, young or old, Australian, 
Nigerian, uh, Ecuadorian, um, man, woman. This is an offer to all. And all, what do we read? Who believe. How do we receive this justification? Through faith in Jesus Christ. This is an, this is an outrageous uh, amendment to the way God's people understood uh, the manner in which they would receive God's blessing. For so many Jewish people, and certainly there's Jewish people in, in the church in Rome, um, you might not necessarily identify with them, but for, for so many of us, our, our instinct says we attain God's righteousness by our moral performance. If I reach a certain level, well, then God will accept me. And certainly that was the Jewish case. Uh, it was cloaked in the, the legal system that their religion was built on. But here, no, not according to law, but by faith. Now, it's important to understand that faith is not another work. It's not, it's not something we exchange with God in return for, you know, his, his blessing. It's not transactional like that. It has no value in of itself. It's not our faith that earns our justification. It's, it's, it's the means by which we receive it. Faith is the, the hands that receive the gift or the mouth that drinks in the living water. Um, uh, we receive this justification uh, simply by <laughs> accepting and, and taking hold of what God offers. Um, and where does it come from? Well, it comes from God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus. His loving, generous provision of what we need. It's entirely undeserved. The key sentence here uh, is in verse 24. They are justified freely by his grace. There's a story of uh, a British conference in the mid-20th century where a bunch of experts, religious experts and philosophers were all talking about the different religions in the world, Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity, and they began debating what the unique contribution was of Christianity. And uh, they, they went around and, is it resurrection? Well, no, there are other religions that have ideas of resurrection, it's not necessarily that. Is it incarnation, um, God taking on human flesh? Well, no, there's other religions and belief systems that have that idea. Um, and then a fellow called C.S. Lewis walked into the room. You may have heard of him. He's written books like Narnia and the Screwtape Letters, a, a, an English um, author and, and theologian. Uh, he walks into the room and catches up and they issue the question, what is it? What is the unique contribution that Christianity makes and he's like, well, it's easy. It's grace. Uh, he didn't have to think twice about it. See, I think we all, what the other conference attendees, what, I think what we all need to remember is that every religious system in the world, even if they have notions of God's kindness, which undoubtedly they do, they're all they're fundamentally about the movement of man towards God. They are, um, it's, it's an ascent. How, what can I do to make 
myself acceptable to God? How can I win God's approval? Now, even though they have different religious figures um, that teach them, you know, Muhammad or Buddha, those figures, um, they're there to show them the way to find approval. And so, without exception, human religion, and whether you're religious or not, whether you have a, a, a worldview that is looking for, um, you know, some kind of transcendence or uh, eternal hope, it is always a matter of moving from, from man to God. How can I make myself right with God? Christianity, biblical Christianity, founded on Jesus, is different. It's not an ascent, but a descent. Um, God descends uh, from his heavenly throne room, takes on flesh, uh, and provides us with what we need to be right with him. Uh, Grace. Grace. Uh, in, In Christ, we see God's provision of righteousness, not to be earned or proved um, or, you know, built up in degree, but freely given. This is, friends, if, if this concept has not uh, registered in your mind and heart before, this, this is it. This is the wonderful message at the heart of Christianity, the message which brings joy to our hearts. This is the Christian gospel that God gives us righteousness. And after the last few weeks, this is exactly what we need for God to give us what we can't attain ourselves. Um, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, uh, the dilemma that we began with is still there though, isn't it? How can God, uh, who is right, look on us and knowing that we're wrong, say that we're right? That's the dilemma. How can God, who is right, um, and who knows that we are wrong, say that we're right? Um, that, is, that is the dilemma which the next few verses address. Um, the righteousness that God demonstrates. Um, and again, uh, could God um, forgive someone like Hitler in, in a righteous way? That's an extreme example, of course, but we, we, must, we must pause and appreciate the gravity of what we've just learnt. God declares sinful people, murderers, um, abusers, um, war criminals, um, liars, um, people that destroy uh, sort of life in God's world, including you and me, God says that he accepts them. How can he do that? What kind of God do we have that does that? Well, verses 24 to 26 um, address that. Um, The way God declares sin as righteous is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a world from business uh, or perhaps... um, uh, the world of uh, human slavery as well. For someone to be redeemed means there's a change of ownership. God uh, 
looks upon someone and purchases them for himself. Um, so in the ancient world, certainly redemption was a word associated with the Exodus, the Israelites being brought out of Egypt. But we redeem anything when we pay a price to transfer ownership. And the redemption, verse 24 says, is in Christ Jesus. And verse 25 goes on to explain how it is that Jesus is the redemption. God presented him, that's Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. This is where we stop and go, what, what on earth are you talking about? Um, slow down. What, what is this mercy seat? This is um, very particular language. Um, some other translations, if you've got a, an NIV in front of you or something else, will use a different word like sacrifice of atonement or propitiation. Let me just explain what the mercy seat is. It's, a, it's an Old Testament um, concept. Think back to um, when Israel came out of Egypt and God instructed them to build the tabernacle, the place where they would meet God. Uh, the tabernacle uh, initially was a tent and then it became the temple, but effectively the, the same structure. Um, there was the, the holy place and then right in, in the middle, this place called the most holy place behind a curtain. Now, ordinary Israelites could never go in uh, to the tabernacle or the temple because it was the place where God was said to dwell. This holy, perfect God was said to dwell in the temple, and in particular, um, in the most holy place. And in the most holy place, behind the curtain, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was situated. Um, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what I'm talking about, but it's um, the Ark of the Covenant, um, you know, it was in the Bible first. Uh, it was the box, it was the box that was made by Moses and his peers according to God's instructions to house the Ten Commandments uh, and the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that's the mercy seat. On the side were these golden cherubim uh, and God was thought, was said to dwell um, uh, in between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And so uh, when the priests would make sacrifices of animals for human sin according to God's instructions. Um, they would take them in and um, sprinkle the blood in, in the sort of the temple. And once a year, only once a year, um, one priest, the, the high priest, was permitted to go into the most holy place next to the Ark of the Covenant, next to the mercy seat, and sprinkle the blood of, of a, a dead goat dead bull on the mercy seat only one priest the high priest only once a year it was called the day of atonement you can read about it in leviticus 16 um, and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat uh, and god would accept the blood of the animal as payment for the sins of the people they were making uh, it was a sacrifice of atonement restoring peace between the perfect holy God and the sinful uh, Israelites. Um, we learned a few weeks ago in our Big Words series that what, what's happening there is God is being propitiated. Propitiation. You re remember Ollie Phillips was up here. We had uh, uh, a, a jug with water uh, which represented God's wrath and I got a sponge representing Jesus and put the sponge in the jug and the sponge absorbed all of God's wrath and when I poured the jug over Ollie's head, nothing came out. Um, he was a bit disappointed by that, I think. Uh, but 
the point was made. Um, so Paul here is saying that what Jesus has done on the cross is a bit like what happened at the mercy seat, a sacrifice of blood made on behalf uh, of sinful people. Um, now, if you... Once you imagine uh, the... What, you know, come to terms with what's going on here. When Jesus died on the cross, um, it is it's a bit like a judge paying the penalty um, that he issues to uh, the criminal. Let me um, tease it out. Tease it out. Imagine you've got a car. Uh, some many of you do. You're driving along Toronto Parade, and the speedometer just creeps up. And then there's a cop there. I've seen cops there. Um, very sneaky. And you edge up over the speed limit and uh, you get pulled over and you cop, um, you, you cop a speeding fine, a significant speeding fine. And so significant, in fact, they take you to the local court because um, let's say you're 50 k's over the limit. Um, I can't imagine anyone would do that. But, um, run with me. Run, run with me for the, for the illustration. Um, you go to... You go to court um, knowing that you're in trouble. You've, you've spared, you've, you're guilty of an offence. Uh, you go to the local court. Um, the good news, though, is that your, your father is the judge um, sitting on the bench that day. And you think, this is fantastic. My dad's the judge. I'll, he'll let me off. Uh, but then as you walk into the courtroom thinking everything's OK, you remember that your dad is a good judge. Uh, he... He delights, in fact, he he's earnestly works hard to uphold justice. He always gets it right. He, he never punishes the, the innocent uh, and he never acquits the guilty. So uh, now you're a little nervous. What, what will Dad do? What will Dad do? The Dad, here's the evidence from the policeman. It's very simple. Uh, you're found guilty of the offence... Uh, and a penalty of $1,000 is issued. Um, but you don't have $1,000 because you're a poor student. Um, you're coming home from uni and uh, you, you, you can't pay. And so the, the court officer is about to take you off uh, to put you in the cell overnight because you can't pay your fine. Uh, and then your dad uh, gets down off the bench, uh, comes, comes around... Uh, into, into the courtroom, takes the robe off and says, here, let me write a check for $1,000. I'm going to pay the penalty for my son. Um, see, this is, this is precisely what is happening on the cross. Um, it's not the case that uh, our sin is overlooked. On the contrary, God himself is paying the penalty that we uh, owe. We owe. Um, He's paying the penalty uh, because he loves us and he wants us to be accepted in his sight. And he's paying the penalty because it would be just unthinkable for justice to be miscarried. Um, some people steeped in Christian tradition uh, that they don't even realise say things like, well, God, God will just forgive. That's his job. People don't realise uh, the, the way passages like this and the Christian gospel have shaped uh, in good ways our approach to uh, 
those needing compassion and help, but it's, it is not the case, let me say this clear, it is not the case that God can just forgive without his wrath being satisfied. Um, and this is what Jesus does on the cross. He's not an innocent third party, like it's some kind of divine child abuse. Now, God himself, in his love and with unflinching commitment to his justice, is paying our penalty. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't, isn't that just the most incredible, stunning truth you could ever conceive of? The most uh, marvellous and wise uh, coincidence of God's mercy and his justice uh, that his people uh, might be uh, made righteous in his sight uh, and yet his justice upheld. This, the cross is... The cross of Christ is God's righteous way of righteousifying the unrighteous. Um, and it's wonderful. Let me very quickly leave you with three reflections. Um, we don't have too much long left. Uh, three reflections that, one that speaks to our head, another that will speak to our heart, and another to our hands. Um, if the gospel explained in Romans 3, 21 to 26, teaches us that it is absolutely exclusive but not discriminatory. What do I mean by that? Um, there is only one way to be made right with God, uh, to accept the gift of righteousness given through faith in Jesus. If there was any other way, if, if there was some other way, with some other religion in some other part of the world, for people to be accepted by God, would God have sent his son Jesus to the cross to earn by his death what we need? No. Now the, the gospel message is exclusive in that it presents to us the only way to be saved. This is not a popular truth, uh, but it is absolutely the truth. But... Uh, it's not discriminatory. This offer is available to anyone. Yes, there is only one way, but it is for all who believe. Anyone, anyone, no matter their record, may come to God and receive the gift of righteousness available to them through Jesus. It's, um, the gospel is exclusive, but it's not discriminatory. What about our hearts? Um, how does this truth shape our feelings? What lives deep in, inside us. Well, uh, we can be absolutely assured, absolutely assured, uh, that if we have faith in Jesus, we are acceptable in his sight. I don't know about you, but I certainly have moments where uh, I have doubts. The sense of assurance wanes. Um, but because the necessary work has been accomplished by Jesus and is not a matter of my performance, we can be absolutely assured. If, if, if you had to score your relationship with God out of 10 today, uh, some of you might be thinking, well, I wasn't at church last week and I haven't read my Bible much, probably a, maybe a 5 or a 6 or 7. The truth of the matter is that according to God, your relationship with him at this present moment and 
of ever since you put your trust in Jesus is 10 out of 10. Our experience of that relationship might, might waver and fluctuate, but in God's sight, it is 10 out of 10. Um, now, of course, we can't boast about that because none of that is on account of our performance. Um, there is no place for boasting. This is what uh, comes up in the end of the chapter from verse 27. It is just absolutely uh, inimical to what is being said here. If, if any of us were to claim credit for uh, our righteousness in God's sight. Thirdly, uh, and finally, as we think about our life of service, um, we're led by gratitude, uh, not fear. This is crucial, isn't it? As we think about trying to live a godly life and serve... Um, we do so out of gratitude and not fear. Um, The difference is one of motivation. In religion, we try and obey divine standards because we're worried that if we don't do enough, we'll fall out of God's favour and lose our entry uh, into everlasting heaven. Uh, But in the gospel, the motivation is not one of fear, but one of thankfulness and gratitude, longing, longing to obey the God who has given so much for us. It's a crucial difference, isn't it? The Christian rushes into obedience, motivated by desire to please and resemble the one who gave his life for us, not fear. We've been calling this series uh, Faith Not Works, and tonight we've learnt why that's the case. Friends, this is a wonderful message. This is the heart of the Christian hope, that we're saved by faith, not by works. God does that. He gives us his righteousness in a righteous way so that he can be merciful and justify those who need it and yet righteous at the same time. Why don't we pray and give God glory for this wonderful truth. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful message that we've heard tonight. We know that we are guilty in your sight, and yet, according to what Jesus has done for us on the cross, according to your grace, we rejoice that you justify us. You declare us righteous. Uh, You declare those with faith righteous uh, through faith because of the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us in a way that upholds your righteousness and uh, punishes our sin in the death of Jesus. Thank you for the confidence and assurance this gives us. Uh, And thank you um, for the new motivation it gives us to live a life pleasing to you. Help us to do just that. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.